This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today, I hand over hosting duties to David Gibson, the director of Fordham Center on Religion and Culture. He's joined by Jack Jenkins, author of American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics, and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. You'll next hear David Gibson. Now, this uh, title, first, um, uh, I really like The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics. Um, you know, historically, uh, to my mind, from what I know, and what I think a lot of people don't know, is that religion was associated quite often, if not most often, with progressive social movements uh, in American history. I mean, from abolitionism, economic populism, William Jennings Bryan, Walter yeah. Rauschenbusch, social gospel types, is, is, and then, of course, up through the civil rights era, civil rights era Martin Luther King Jr., et cetera. Is that the case? Oh yeah, and and I think that I mean you can you can go throughout American history and um, find these very explicit historical examples of what we would now look at as these kind of progressive-minded activists who were pushing for change, like as you noted, the abolitionist movement, um, or you know the civil rights movement, or in between there, you know, kind of this economic populism of the early twentieth century. Those movements were like, aggressively religious. In fact, the social gospel. Um, you know, what we now refer to as the progressive movement in the United States, you know, there's a whole argument that it actually originated in these religious movements, this, these um, calls for this fusion of a kind of theology that says maybe the Industrial Revolution left some people out, or maybe the impact of the Industrial Revolution didn't uh, actually trickle down, as it were, to the poor and to a lot of the working class. And so, you know, a lot of the, the formation of what we now understand to be progressivism, it would, would became the New Deal, um, et cetera, et cetera. I write about that a little bit in the book about how historically um, that era actually, you know, when we think of religion and politics today, we think of like kind of the religious right. But back in the early 20th century, it was liberal Christianity that was kind of the main um, political force to be reckoned with. So and it was arguably in response to that that we get the modern religious right. So all that is to say, yeah, it's been that way for a long time. And again, like as you just alluded to, when did that change, really? Well, so I, I've mentioned this a little bit in the book, but you know, kind of as a result, as a response to liberal Christianity kind of triumphing in the 1920s, particularly the 1930s, um, you know, the whole D New Deal era, you kind of saw this retreat from society happen among the religious right, or what at the time were just called Christian conservatives or fundamentalists. But what was actually happening in that moment was a few different things. One. Christian conservatives started creating their own institutions, their own schools, their own publishing houses, their own magazines, their own form of discourse, you know, kind of happening um, either, you know, only in conversation with or even outside of mainstream American discourse. And you also had um, something I allude to in the book about um, this sort of uh, coalition that got formed between businesses that felt that the New Deal era didn't particularly benefit them and Christian conservatives. And they started fusing uh, concepts of patriotism and nationalism in particular um, with the, th this idea of to be an American is to be a Christian and to be an American is to value capitalism, right? And so you got this sort of fusion of what we now would call actually something close to prosperity gospel um, theology and something we would call Christian nationalism, um, which for a time actually ended up occupying two different spaces in American religion and now have actually in the last few years reacquainted themselves with one another. But when after that original marriage that happened in the 1930s of businesses and 
um, conservative preachers, you slowly but surely, you know, quietly for a long time, but then really picking up in the 70s and 80s, you saw this group that we now know as the religious right really ascend the power and kind of focus in on a couple of issues, particularly um, same-sex marriage or just LGBTQ rights and abortion. Um, and that slowly bifurcated the electorate into those spaces we now see them today. And so that's that's the rough, um, you know, grossly overgeneralized history of the religious right that I that I've come across. And because today the reality is, I mean, you talk to anybody and you look at polls. I mean, religion is associated with conservatism, is associated with the Republican Party. Um, right. Is that just in the popular imagination or is that the facts on the ground? I'd it, it is not. It is. It is not true that religion is the unique purview of, of conservatism or the Republican Party. Um, it is certainly true that they have been, you know, in the last two or three years, or two or three decades, um, the conservatives, particularly conservative Christians, not exclusively um, conservative Christian Protestants, but often conservative Christian evangelical Protestants, um, have been really enthusiastic about trumpeting, you know, um, their faith in the public sphere and marrying that with their policy proposals, whereas. Democrats have repeatedly invoked their faith um, for the last three or four decades, but haven't done it in the same way and haven't done it as enthusiastically um, as you've seen people on the religious right. Now, however, what's been interesting is that even during those time periods, there was never an era where there weren't Democrats or progressives or liberals who were inspired to be Democrats, progressives or liberals precisely because of their faith. That has always been true. Um, and they have always been these activists in particular who weren't necessarily seeking a victory at the ballot box, but were trying to do advocacy on behalf of a piece of legislation, for instance, that never went away. And so you come up to this modern era, um, you know, basically in the last um, 15, 20 years, and you actually find that a lot of Democrats kind of reacquainted themselves with faith in some ways in reaction to the religious right. You know, there was a group of organizations in the first chapter of the book, I kind of go through this, that were created um, by a bunch of kind of, you know, Washington, D.C. liberal insiders in some ways to kind of counteract the influence of the religious right, to reacquaint themselves with these progressive religious activists that have really never gone away. Um, and so you kind of have had this sort of slow, you know, uh, groundswell of activism and kind of attachments to politics over the last few decades, um, over the last like, decade and a half that, you know, kind of went, happened underneath the radar, but has proven to be very influential. Now, I will say that there has also been the growth of the religiously unaffiliated, and we can come back to that. But in, the, in terms of just raw politics and religion, no, that's not exclusively the purview of the religious right. Now, you in on Twitter, where you and I both spend way too much time, way you're, too much. you're a champion of the, uh, of the religious left. Um, the, the idea of the religious left. Um, what is that? Define that. Is it the reverse image, the mirror image of the religious right? Or how should we, because I mean, just numbers wise, you don't seem to have the churchgoers, mosque goers, synagogue goers that you have on the religious right. So what is the religious left? Right. And I, I think this is a really important question. And it's I think people reflexively look at the religious left and try to think, or they hear the idea of a religious left, and they're like, oh, just like you've copy-pasted the religious right and then reconstructed it in the Democratic Party or in the Progressive Coalition. And to be fair, there are certain elements that, for which that is true, organizations and entities that were you know, developed you know, in some ways to try to mimic or at least you know, counteract the influence of the religious right. 
But in truth, the religious left doesn't work like the religious right. And the reason for that is because the left doesn't look like the religious right. There is nothing that is the same as the religious right on the left, whether, you know, for any issue, for any demographic. There's no one that is organized in the same way that, you know, preaches the same kind of theology that attaches themselves to power in the same way on the left as you find on the right. And part of that's just because, and I kind of get into this a little bit in the book, that, you know, the progressive coalition, the modern progressive coalition is, a, is basically a coalition of coalitions. It's a lot of different diverse identities, um, races, gender identities, you know, issue spaces, advocacy um, groups that, that don't always have the exact same uh, I, um, you know, identity or political persona, whereas when you're in the religious right, there's relatively more uniform um, hegemony on, in that side than you're going to find in the left. So what you, that means for the religious left is that the religious left, unlike the right that has really been concerned with you know, elections in the ballot boxes and judges, what you often find is the most vocal and most influential pieces of the religious left are these activists and advocates that are really good at forging coalitions and really good at forging, forging connections across difference, where they kind of pool different groups together, where the leader of an immigration movement that's faith-based will team up with the leader of someone who's working on climate change that's faith-based, who will team up with someone who's working on racial justice that's faith Based. And so that seems to me, and that's what I kind of focus in on the book, that's one of the greatest strengths of the religious left that's different from the religious right. But if they're good on issues, are they good on politics, on, on elections, on getting people out to vote and getting their candidates in Congress and in state houses? So the, the short answer to that one is like, if you're looking for any group on the left to be equally as powerful as the religious right, that doesn't exist. So what you have to do instead is what progressives often do in general and the religious left does in particular, which is that it's about these small little margins, right? So the case example I look at in the book is the uh, Senate campaign in Alabama, where Doug Jones was elected the first Democratic candidate, um, Democratic senator from that state in quite some time, over Roy Moore. Now, Roy Moore lost for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which he was accused of sexually assaulting like young women for years. But like, it, but one of the things that people noted in, on election day, um, when Doug Jones was actually, you know, claimed victory, was that a big part of the electorate that helped get him into um, into Congress were these African American Protestants, you know, people who were often organized through their churches, particularly African-American women who make up a decent percentage of those who are in the pews in black churches. And so um, when, you're, when you're looking at that dynamic, that made a difference on election day. It's one of the reasons he is a senator um, from Alabama. Similarly, you know, Joe Biden is now the Democratic, presumptive Democratic nominee in large part, again, because of the support of um, black Protestants, particularly in South Carolina and in other states. And so there are moments where these groups can make a difference on election day. This is also true of, for instance, uh, Muslim Americans who live in Michigan, right outside of Detroit and kind of Dearborn, Michigan. That's a significant population. And if they are galvanized and mobilized ahead of an election, a statewide or a national race in that state, it can make a difference on election day. And that's kind of the, the more ca careful, you know, precise math that someone who does faith outreach on the left does compared to someone on the right who kind of looks in these more broad sweeping strokes of large mega churches that can reach a large group of people. It's more kind of small little groups that add up that are greater than the sum of their parts as opposed to one um, monolithic voting block. Well, when you say religious outreach on the left, 
we're talking really about the Democratic Party, and I think you and I have both uh, been around long enough to see it uh, done poorly. Then that kind of awakening, seeing it done well, certainly the uh, first Obama campaign uh, did it quite well. Um, then uh, not so well. Do the Democrats get religion now in 2020? So this is a, this is this is the burning question. So. It's an interesting question because the, what you just alluded to, which we, we trace in the book, kind of the development of the Obama, the 2008 Obama campaign, which had this robust, um, enthusiastic religious outreach effort. And, it, and there's, there's data to prove that it, it made dividends at the end of the day. Um, it even pulled some young evangelicals across the aisle uh, towards Democrats, or at least to Obama in particular. Interestingly, while they did also muster a faith outreach um, um, effort during the re-election of Barack Obama, it was nowhere near as robust as they had in 2008. But they had some support from the Democratic Party. Now, I bring that up because when you hit 2016 and Hillary Clinton was running for president, they did have a faith outreach director. That person had two jobs, one of which was faith outreach, one of which was basically all this outreach to all these very um, granular communities throughout the country. They didn't have um, somebody on the Democratic Party who was specifically full-time employed by the party to do faith outreach. And so, you know, you'd had a dearth of, of, um, of activism and of organizing in that space. And there are many who argue that while there are many reasons why Donald Trump became president in 2016, and they're all razor thin, and you can kind of pick and choose which reason you want to choose for why um, he ended up getting elected. One of them could, could be, and many have argued, um, is that the, the Clinton campaign didn't do um, adequate faith outreach. Now, fast forward to this past Democratic primary, and this is one of the most overtly and vocally religious um, Democratic primaries that we've had in quite some time. I mean, you had, you had people like Pete Buttigieg open, openly talking about the religious left, like by name. You had Cory Booker delivering what were essentially sermons on the stump. Um, you had you know, people kind of uh, what was it? Elizabeth Warren had her pastor pray with her before every debate. Um, you, it, like you had even uh, Kamala Harris when she launched her campaign, like dropped a little bit of liberation theology into her announcement speech. And so it's interesting. Bernie, because, Bernie Sanders was uh, uh, as much an Old Testament prophet as anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> and perhaps the and, only one who's been over to the Vatican. I think in 2016, he was just- he, True. Took that quick and, trip over to the Vatican for a uh, climate change conference. And very much wanted to like, like talk about Pope Francis. And this yeah. go round, while he wasn't as enthusiastic about talking about his Judaism in 2016, this go round he really was. I mean, he was like very much owning it. They produced like videos about it. And so you, you really did see people kind of claim their faith in a very prominent way. Now, Joe Biden has never been shy about talking about his Catholicism for a while, to the point where he kind of has like a formulaic speech about you know, quoting Kierkegaard because um, he talks about it so often. Now, all that having been said, we do know that they have, that the Democratic Party has rehired the staffer who worked on the Democratic side to do faith outreach in 2012. They've now rehired that person for 2020. It's unclear what um, Biden's you know, strategy is for faith outreach leading into this general election. But I, I do think they've learned, the party in general knows that they that they, at least they've told me that they think they need to do more on this. But what, whether that'll look like 2008 or that, whether that'll look like 2012 is an open question. Is it, I mean, is Biden someone who, you know, he's old school Catholic. Um, he's not Obama, you know, who, 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 can, who could speak so eloquently uh, about faith. And yet 
didn't convince anybody on the other side that he was uh, he was a Christian necessarily. You know, uh, but uh, Biden, you know, is an older generation Vatican II era Catholic. Can he speak God talk? Can he speak to the religious left the way in in a way they'll understand? So this is an interesting. There's I think there's a three different parts of your question. The first is you know whether or not. Joe Biden, the candidate, can appeal to you know religious voters in general. And I think Biden, if there is a, a one demographic that I think that it makes sense for him to target in a religious sense and a strategic sense, and that he'll be able to kind of have a rapport with, it's roughly the same demographic that he was you know arguably brought on the ticket for in 2008 to court, which is these white working class voters in the Rust Belt that proved to be so influential in 2016. And a lot, there's a heavy percentage of them are Catholic, and that's a demographic that Biden can speak to. And he certainly has Catholic chops. I mean, from what I am heard, you know, Sister Simone Campbell has been in constant conversation with his campaign. He actually has a lot of existing relationships with Catholic leaders and Catholic nuns. Um, so within the raw Catholicism, Catholic outreach element, I think Biden has a lot to pull from there. The second question is what that looks like on the ground, the second part. And I will note it's interesting that, one, he did do some targeted Catholic outreach in Iowa. It, it seemed like it kind of came late, but he had like nuns writing letters to people in Dubuque, a heavily Catholic city there. Um, and of course, it didn't result in a victory at the end of the day, but there does seem to have been some experimentation there. But perhaps more notably, you know, Biden had, was the first campaign to hire a, a, a state-specific South Carolina faith outreach director. And within four months of hiring that back in, you know, mid to like late summer 2019, they were announcing the endorsement of 100 different faith leaders in that state alone. And that, I think there's, that's not a coincidence. I think he was looking at the Obama playbook a little bit and saying, okay, we can, if we get on the ground early on this, this is a way that he can, you know, at the time, really keep South Carolina as a firewall and really lean on those faith communities to, to show up from on election day. And then, that, so there is this element where I do think he has, if he pulls from the Obama playbook, which I, I, I would be surprised if he did not, I think he has that capacity um, to kind of, you know, do the targeted outreach efforts as well. And then there's the third piece, which is whether he's talking to the religious left, not just as voters, not just as this electorate, but as these advocates and these activists. And that's a little different. I will note he did go last year when the Poor People's Campaign had a, um, a presidential candidates forum in Washington, D.C. Nine different Democratic candidates showed up, including Biden. And it actually got Biden in trouble because he actually repeated one of the talking points of the Poor People's Campaign and botched it. And so the Washington Post actually fact-checked and did a whole fact checker explainer on whether or not his claim about poverty was correct. And they basically had to admit in the fact check that the poor people's campaign was accurate and Joe Biden had botched the quote. But the point, the fact that he felt obligated to be there and want to talk to them does show that at least with either Biden himself or his campaign staffers know that these sorts of um, prominent faith leaders like William Barber, who runs, who's one of the co-chairs of the poor people's campaign, are folks he should at least be in conversation with. But whether or not he'll be able to galvanize them in the same way that someone like Bernie Sanders um, or someone like Pete Buttigieg was able to do this, two different like subsets of the religious left there, but how they were both able to talk to them in this democratic primary, that remains to be seen. How much is, on the other side, how much is Trump galvanizing religious progressives, the religious left? You do a, um, you do a chapter on the, the Charlottesville marches and, and, and that sort of 
turning point, it seems to me, the way you depict it, obviously very moving and, a, and something we should never forget. How much is Trump and this threat of white Christian nationalism on the other side really doing Biden and the Democrats work for them? It, I mean, it, it, it is huge. I mean, I, um, I wrote a piece right after Trump was elected that kind of said, look, there are all these activists that have been in the religious left and a lot of their movements, and I know this in the book, actually started under Obama, but they were smaller. They, were, they weren't these like robust um, you know, behemoth activist groups as um, at the time, they were just kind of starting these granular movements. But when Trump got elected, he became the sort of existential threat to not only a lot of the movements that these faith-based activists were pushing for, but in some instances, the activists themselves. Um, and so it really kind of provided this common enemy, as it were, um, this common cause to you know, push back against Trump. And that's why so many of these, uh, these resistance movements you know, were led, spearheaded by members of the religious left. And part of that's because they've been doing activism for so long, it's natural that they're the ones who are willing to be at the front and get arrested. Religious progressives, religious progressive activists, as it were, they're really good at getting arrested. Like it's like, <laughs> they're, they're very good at the poetry of protest. And so when they have this sort of like, you know, very overt threat to the things that they believe in, and then not someone like Obama, who they're trying to persuade to push a little farther left, um, it really kind of has created this, this really broad sweeping movement. And that's where you get people like Linda Sars, who are helping being one of the four co-chairs in the Women's March. That's where you get William Barber and Tracy Blackman being at the front of those protests in, um, in the Affordable Care Act. Um, the attempt by Republicans to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. You know, the people who were at the front of a lot of those marches were William Barber, Tracy Blackman, and other progressive faith leaders. And so it's given them this common cause. So now there is an open question about what happens if Trump is defeated. If if Trump goes away, at least in the power sense, will will these groups continue to operate and coordinate as as well as they have for the last three years? And that's a question I think for the left in general. But in the meantime. I do think things like Charlottesville, think, and, and the president's response to Charlottesville, things like the, um, the, the travel ban, which was originally proposed as an explicit Muslim ban, like those are things that really gather more groups of people together than otherwise would have hung out together. And we can see that pan out um, as different communities who, who feel beleaguered by this administration start organizing together um, through their faith. The, um... Within, referring back to the top of our conversation, we talked about the demographics of religion and non-religion, the, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, is the unaffiliated uh, younger people tend to be more progressive people mm -hmm. uh, out there. Th those are folks with no religious affiliation. Within this progressive camp are people of faith and people of no faith natural allies, or is, it, is there a, a problem, an antagonism there? So I think this has been one of the like unsung, untold stories of um, progressive activism uh, in the Trump era is that there was some pretty noticeable antagonism between um, particularly, you know, um, intense atheists and agnostics um, and, and just religiously unaffiliated people who really don't like seeing uh, religion you know, from, uh, uh, they, don't, they don't like it from a pulpit because they don't want to be in the church to begin with, but they definitely don't like it from a podium where a candidate is speaking. Mm -hmm. And so there was this sort of like tension that you kind of really saw 
um, you know, before 2016 between some of these groups that I ran into when I was doing reporting back at Think Progress at the time. And it wasn't like, like hyper combative, but it was real. But what's been interesting about the Trump era is that I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in that, that Charlottesville and Ferguson chapter is that the activists, the, the, the faith-based activists who showed up to those, um, those events, they really had to re-earn the respect of some of the more secular activists around them. They, they, and they earned it literally sometimes in the streets. And when those activists and advocates who were, you know, either atheist agnostic or just religiously unaffiliated and don't have a very strong tie to the church um, or, or any faith community, um, they, when they saw that, they're like, you know what, look, maybe I'm not huge on faith in general. Maybe I'm, you know, I use, I, I grew up in a very religious home and it really wasn't great for me, but, but I like you, like you person who's been on the front lines for this act and for this protest. Okay. I can stand next to you. And, it, and, that, and that's happened so many times that the, the tension with, between those groups has really kind of fallen off a cliff from where I sit um, in terms of people, the antagonism between them. You also see something of a um, ethnic racial divide there as well. I think, um, you know, some of the younger uh, woke <laughs> uh, real, uh, progressives um, not seeing the power of the black churches, for example, in South Carolina. Is that something that's also uh, progressives are coming to realize that, you know, this, uh, that uh, religion on the left is quite often more powerful and more attached to uh, ethnic and racial communities, the African-American community in particular. Yeah, and I think, I, th I do think one of the interesting things that you've seen happen in progressive circles where interfaith organizers will show up, and I've seen this throughout my career as a reporter, um, is that, you know, for certain communities, not just Black Protestants, also um, Muslim Americans um, who, who, you know, don't, um, who don't, who might from immigrant backgrounds, um, Hispanic populations who claim Catholicism frequently, or evangelicalism intensely, um, you know, these different communities will say like, you know, like, I don't, like, I, I, as it, I heard it said at one gathering, I don't really have a choice. Like, religion is a part of my life whether I want it to be or not. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, and, and for them, as these as these coalitions continue to broaden in the progressive uh, you know, movement in general, I think it's now become unavoidable for a lot of activists that you know you're gonna run into these communities or other fellow activists for whom faith is their main core driving force, not only in you know the way that they live their daily life, but also their activism. And as you know, the, the United States continues to grow more racially diverse faith will continue to occupy a big part of that conversation. So yes, I do think, um, and you know, in, because, because the, the biggest drop off in terms of religious affiliation has often happened in more privileged white communities, um, as those people who are activists in that space suddenly engage with folks who are not of that same demographic, they're starting to say like, look, you know, I can, I can talk about, I, I know how I feel about faith, um, you know, uh, but I don't know I know that I can't get the work done that I want to get done without partnering with these allies. And for them, faith is a crucial reason for why they show up to work every day. And so I need to be able to at least be conversant of it or respectful of it. Um, so I see that a lot. Tell me how influential, how important is our religious progressives going to be in November? So uh, I, no matter what, I think certain, like, as I mentioned earlier, these kind of targeted communities, the African-American Protestant vote, um, Muslim Americans in certain 
areas and many other more targeted groups, those will prove influential primarily because the margins for the for these elections are so small, right? Like Trump won, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania back in 2016 with by by margins so small that you could take all the voters from those three states that he was able to win by, and they still don't fill up a baseball stadium. And so, you know, that to me says that Democrats don't can't afford to really ignore anyone um, when it comes to winning votes this go round. It is also interesting, you know, the pandemic, we live in this era where it's unlikely, um, not totally impossible, but unlikely we're going to have a vaccine and all feel super safe gathering in large um, groups by November. Um, and so, and, and religious progressives often do their, their, their most um, powerful organizing when in large groups, in protests, et cetera, et cetera. So there is kind of that interesting dynamic there. However, you know, the way I look at it is so many of those those movements, um, you know, the people that I chronicle in the book, whether they're fighting for immigrant rights, whether they're fighting for LGBTQ rights, whether they're fighting for the rights of Muslim Americans and Jewish Americans who've had their synagogues and mosques, you know, had firebombed or defaced in the midst of the Trump era. That fear, those concerns, those issues are not going to go away. And I think uh, for a lot of people, this has been the long game is to try to get Trump um, unseated. And those progressive faith activists, while they're not going to quote unquote endorse, well, some will, but like, um, but they're, they're not going to spend a whole lot of time endorsing a candidate one way or another, they're going to do everything they can um, between now and November to advocate for those issues. And while there, you know, there may be a scenario in which a third party candidate bleeds away some votes, I actually see that's probably less likely now. You've been listening to David Gibson, the director of Fordham Center on Religion and Culture, and author Jack Jenkins. His latest book, American Prophets, is published by Harper One. Thanks for listening to Fordham Conversations.